You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. Good morning, Life Tree. Uh, in a moment, we're going to be reading and digging into 2 Samuel chapter 22. It's a beautiful song, which is also found in Psalm 18. It's something David wrote and sang near the end of his life. It's a victory song. It's a battle song. It's a song from someone familiar with war and very familiar with winning. In the midst of lots of defeat, there was always victory. And I don't feel right that we would jump into scripture talking about victory and battle and war and what God's called us to and miss praying for the Ukraine today. I've tried to set a personal goal that daily I would pray some, add to my wisdom, to my insight, so that I wouldn't be here in my safety and comfort ignoring what's affecting millions and millions of people so powerfully in another part of the world. So if you could just join me in prayer for a moment. If there's something you're called or led to pray, just pray into this moment right now before we look into the scriptures. Lord, we pray that your name would be made great in every nation of our world. And we recognize, Lord, that regardless of the nation, there's a legacy of the name of Jesus and people who honor you, your word, and seek your kingdom. Lord, I pray protection over people in the midst of conflict who are trapped and who have not chosen that conflict. I pray for people who name the name of Jesus who are in the church, both in Russia and Ukraine, to know how to rise up both in action and in prayer that speaks spiritually to the conflict which is behind all of the physical harm that's taking place. We pray for millions of people vulnerable with famine because of wheat not leaving the Ukraine, wheat that was grown and intended to save lives and nourish people. We ask, Lord God, for peace where there's conflict, We ask that you would drive back those who are oppressors. That you would completely spoil the plans of those who seek to harm others. And that you'd raise up people who don't seek to make a name for themselves, but a name for Jesus. I pray that you'd put a circle of protection around each place where there's a battle. And that people who have chosen to not war, but have been forced into it either side... Lord, that you'd use their voice, that you'd use their objection, their love for peace and for what's right and what's good and what's righteous to be a massive sway and influence over their peers. Lord, we pray, Lord God, for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you. So the big thing to keep in mind, guys, while we're looking at 2 Samuel 22, which I might also accidentally reference as Psalm 18 because they're almost one and the same, is it's a song. And I don't think there's a lot of us, I'm not one of them, I journal regularly, but I don't write songs regularly. I don't often put to music what it is that I'm experiencing in life, but there was something about David and the cadence of his life that he loved to sing about both the difficult and the wonderful in his life. So this is a victory song from a warrior king, and as I dig into it, especially as we get into the verses 20 and following, we see the gospel 
rendered and opened up beautifully, and you're going to understand if you don't yet know what that means. And we're just going to go through it, uh, groupings of verses at a time rather than reading all of it at once. And I'd call this morning's teaching, A King Who Sings the Gospel. He's looking ahead hundreds of years to what Jesus would accomplish in the same way that we can look back hundreds of years to what Jesus did accomplish. And he's able to see prophetically what we know now has already been fulfilled. It's incredibly insightful how David sang the close of his life, looking at himself the way God saw him. So let's read a few verses at the start. It really does set the pace or the rhythm. The first four verses of 2 Samuel 22, they will come up on the screen as well. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, if you don't know the story of David, you'll know that when he was a young man, he'd already been anointed as the king by the prophet Samuel, but he didn't, as often had happened, immediately take the throne. There were many years that passed from when he was anointed and declared, you are the one God has chosen, until he rightfully took that place in the kingdom. And in the interim, there was the first king of Israel, Saul, who the Lord had left. He did not have the blessing of God on him, but he would not over his dead body let go of the kingdom. And David refused to fight for that kingdom which he'd been anointed. He rather chose God's way peacefully. And there were numerous stories. If you want to get some great stories and you haven't read the scriptures before, jump into the books of First and Second Samuel and read about David with his army who are like incredible, invincible warriors. But because David doesn't want to accede to the throne without the permission of God, he's hiding in a cave as Saul hunts him. And there's deliverance after deliverance in David's life where there is no battle, where God brings about miraculous intervention where there is no physical conflict, no swords clash, but God shows up in amazing ways. So it's in all of these circumstances that David's reflecting, and he said, he sang, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent people you save me. I called to the Lord, who's worthy of praise, and have been saved from my enemies. What a warm-up. Imagine starting your day for the next week and just taking those first four verses and crying them out and singing them out. There were more than a few times in David's life when he truly lost his way, We'll discuss that a bit this morning, when he clearly sinned, made mistakes, and a few times needed correction because even doing hideously wrong things, there seemingly was no conscience kicking in, warning him or alerting him to say, you're completely on the wrong path. There were times where he was very hard-hearted and stubborn. So in short, David was a true human, like you and I. He had highs and he had lows. He made horrendous mistakes that deeply impacted thousands and sometimes millions of other people. However, there's two arenas in which he stands out as an amazing example. One of them is noted early in his life in 1 Samuel 13. He had a heart after God. And it's kind of hard sometimes for us to reconcile that a person can have a heart after God 
and at times do things that are so contrary to the heart of God. Thankfully, God's big enough to figure that out and work it through in our lives. That sometimes our behavior, our actions, doesn't really show symmetry with our heart. But praise God, he can bring us back. He can move us back and align us with his heart. And the second thing about David that's truly remarkable, he won every battle that scripture records he ever fought. We sing worship songs, you never lost a battle, and we're singing to Jesus. Well, Jesus is very notably referenced in scripture ahead of time and after he was born incarnate on the earth as the son of David. And if there's one attribute more than any other that lines up who Jesus was and how David lived, it's these are victors. They never lose battles. And as all of us should note, when David stepped out of the arenas where he was called, he became vulnerable. There's four lessons we'll look at this morning from David's gospel song. First, we'll talk about, as we have a little bit read already in the first few verses, a salvation thesaurus is what I'll call it. Remember uh, Reader's Digest as a kid, there was always these little um, writings that said that it pays to enrich your word power. I subscribe daily to an email that says, this is the word of the day, and it usually tosses me vocab I've never encountered before. Sometimes I have, and it's kind of like you're getting ready for the next Scrabble match all the time. But I'm curious, and it's a good place to search in your own heart, how much has your vocab been expanding in how you talk about Jesus, pray to him, reference him to others? We're going to look at that in Salvation Thesaurus. Secondly, salvation drama. You want to see a crossover between a Pixar animator, Greek mythology, the Marvel movies, and David's prayers being answered. You get into a crazy, incredible picture in the verses 5 and following of how David cries out for help and God comes to his aid. And it's a beautiful antithesis to those many psalms of David written where he's like, how long do I have to wait? Have you forgotten me? All the wicked people seem to be prospering. Why won't you come to those who are righteous? Because those were sometimes his realities. But as he wraps up his life and puts it to verse, he sings about a triumphant God who comes to his aid. And we'll talk about that. Then I think my favorite part of um, 2 Samuel 22 is what I'll call blameless boasting. Because he starts talking about himself. It's like, are you the same David that I've read about? How can you describe yourself this way? And the answer is simply, this is how Jesus sees me. And finally, the verses that we'll wrap up with, which won't take us right to the end. With my God, I can do anything. And I don't know if you get out of bed in the morning and say that, pray it, or even come close to believing it. But you might want to start practicing because it's truth. With my God, I can do anything. So let's look at salvation thesaurus. David's heart for God is evidenced by his glossary of terms for the Lord in his life. And I wonder if you're a person who prays before meals and maybe others like your children or your partner listen to you pray, does God get the same one, two, or maybe at the most three references when you pray to him, pray about him or speak of him, and that's kind of where your vocab stops? Because often I think what that might suggest is that's where your experience with him stops as well. So take a look at how David references God, the Lord, 
in this song. In just the first few verses, he's a rock, fortress, deliverer, refuge, shield, horn of my salvation, and my savior. Our family went on a road trip a few weeks ago, and we covered ground at a different pace than I've been used to covering that same terrain. We went through the Rockies, through Jasper and Banff, stopped in places like Canmore, Lake Louise, went to Drumheller, and these were all roads and places that I went as a younger person to and from, living in Vancouver with my family, and living in dormitories at college in Regina. And over the years of doing a degree, back and forth semester, semester break, Christmas, Christmas break, summer, summer break, and invariably it would be snowing in Regina as the school year started in September, and it would still be snowing in April in grad week every year. And so going through the Rockies was always torturous at the close of a week of final exams. And it was either driving a $500 car or hitchhiking. That was my usual way of cruising through the Rockies in the middle of winter. And it felt to me as I went through it, now with my family in the middle of summer, stopping to have ice cream cones along the way, that there was this completely different texture to that road than I had as an 18 to 20-something year old. I could recall a place outside of Salmon Arm where I was too tired to stay up any later at night, hitchhiking beside the road and just rolling up in a second set of clothing and sleeping in the ditch. But reading the Bible till last light. I remember going over a bridge that has a bend in it between Field and Golden. I was hitchhiking in a small compact truck with a guy I'd met an hour before and we had a front end collision with an oncoming semi on that bridge. Coming the opposite way near Golden with five passengers in my $800 Ford LTD, we did two 360s and went down a 100-foot embankment in five feet of snow in the middle of the night. And it felt like just every corner, every turn, every piece of that roadway, I was just going, how did we pull this off, God? Studies weren't the highlight, it was the travel. So many experiences where something stuck out in God's word, where I had a vehicle, but I felt compelled in the last week of college to sell it and give the money away. And then again, I was back to hitchhiking, which I was trying to get away from doing. And story after story, and the texture and the dimension of God as a provider, more than anything, I think, stood out. From a financial perspective, from a safety perspective, just God rescuing me time and again. And I remember in the midst on an icy road in the middle of one of those 360s in my Ford LTD with five passengers, saying to everybody as we went towards the guardrail and broke through it, everybody pray, pray to Jesus right now. And we were in the weeds in the dark. And there was just so many experiences where God did something revolutionary. So think about your relationship and your vocab with God. Put it in the terms of just two people. Let's say they know each other for 20 years, they meet every second Tuesday at the same coffee shop, they each order the same drink, share the same bagel, and talk about likely political candidates for the provincial party where they live. And after 40 minutes, they wrap up their conversation and go home. And that's it. Every meeting, every discussion, every bagel, it's the same. The way those people would reference one another, then compare it to two other people who become best friends, fall in love, have a family, raise children, have losses, 
figure out finances, bury their parents, work with their kids, and build a life. How would those two people talk about one another? Obviously, one is going to have a glossary far weightier than the other. It's no different in our walk with Jesus. Just trying to get the way I put my words here. How do you develop intimacy with another? The answer is shared experience in multiple arenas. You've got to have shared experience in multiple arenas. And the question I want to put to us this morning, is there an arena in your life, an aspect or an area, where you've not been willingly letting Jesus come? It might be a certain part physically of the house. Maybe he doesn't get to be part of you preparing meals or shopping for food. Maybe he doesn't get to come into the bedroom. Maybe he doesn't get to be at the computer screen. Maybe you keep Jesus out of your emotions, and that's the arena he's not allowed to get into. Maybe when emotionally things get below a certain line, that's when he gets squeezed out because now you've believed a lie that he's no longer good because your life doesn't feel good. Maybe at the high points, which is the most common experience for Israel and for David, when things seem completely at peace, Israel would be described by prophets as fat and well-fed and stiff-necked, speaking of a cow that won't come into the barn. You tend to forget about him then. But there's the question for each of us. What areas, what aspects do we keep him out? Because that's where your glossary of experience will be deficient. And so maybe the prayer for each of us today is, Lord, let me get to know you in new ways, in new areas, in new aspects of my life, so that you're welcomed into every sphere, into every arena. So that when I pray, whoever's listening, whether it's the Holy Spirit only or my children or my neighbor, people can tell there's something dynamic at work in a relationship that I have with Almighty God. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of my biggest surprises when I went to college and started into studying the Bible under people who were older and wiser is this notion that kept persisting that everyone needs a savior. And this is the language of David throughout his life. Many of us may have been raised in a church-type setting, and the notion given to us has been at a point in life All people should say, please forgive me, God, and save me from my sins. And then once that happens, we talk past tense only of being saved once. That's not at all how David speaks of his Savior. And the scriptures are consistent throughout Old and New Testament with the way David speaks of a Savior. I woke up today, guys. I need a Savior. I look back to the day I was 18, and I know then, past tense, concretely, I was saved. I needed a Savior that day, and I need it just as much today. And there will be tomorrow and years to come, and I will need saving again and again from my thoughts, from lies, from oppression, from beliefs that are not true. There's many different ways in which God saves us. And boy, do we need saving. And I think it's the most under-recognized, valuable trait of God in my life. I don't appreciate how much saving I need. And that tends to cause an independent mindset rather than a spirit of complete humility to the one who I continually rely on.
to be saved. There's a gorgeous reference in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 30. David hasn't yet ascended the throne, but he's got a powerful following. They have a lot of goodwill of the nation, but it's still in that era where Saul is hunting him. And they come back to where they've been living with their family, with their possessions, David and his group. And they return as a fighting group to realize all of their families, all of their possessions have been taken and gone. It's been days. And he's the one, David's the one in the eyes of all the men who led them into this situation. We're all without our families. We're all without everything. And we gave up everything to follow you. And now here you are as our leader and we're all without possessions. All the ones we love are gone and they've been gone for days. And it says that at that point in that passage, the men actually spoke of stoning him. And David himself was without his family and his possessions. So he was just as bereft as the rest of them, and it was on him in their minds. And there's a beautiful phrase that I'm sure you've heard before if you studied the scriptures, where it says in 1 Samuel 30, each one, these are the men of David, was bitter in spirit because of losing his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord. And there's beautiful renderings of that in different translations and interpretations. But there was a moment, an arena, a low of the lowest in David's life, where both the men who had been for him turned against him, and everything he'd lived for was taken from him. And where did he go? He went to the Lord. I think to just put the wrap up on this idea of building a glossary, a salvation thesaurus, Psalm 22 tells us that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. Can you just say that with me? The Lord inhabits the praises of his people. So when I say God is a certain way to me, a certain person to me, and it's true, and it agrees with scripture, he actually comes and then manifests himself as that. So the sick person declaring God is my healer is in their illness, honestly admitting what's true of God, and then in declaring him healer, we create room for him to come and provide healing. If the sick person says, oh, God isn't showing up in my life. I don't know why I'm sick. There's nothing for him to inhabit. So the more you cry out, God, save me. You're my savior. The more space you give for him to show up and be your savior. And so you look for what it is he needs to inhabit. You praise him because of what scripture says, not how you're feeling this moment. And you just gave him powerful right of way in your life to come and inhabit the very ways in which you've praised him. So that's salvation thesaurus. Now we're going to get into salvation drama. (laughs) This is a really cool passage. Verses uh, 5 to 20. And I just realized that because it's a big chunk, I didn't print it out, and I got to get my Bible from here. And I thought I had all my text written out. Okay. So we're in 2 Samuel 22, and we're going to go to verse uh, 5 and following. And I didn't want it to be up on the screen on purpose, because it's a lot of words, and I want you to get the picture. 
I think it's better to listen to this with your eyes closed than open so that you can hear what David sings because this is powerful. So 2 Samuel 22, I'm going to read about 15 verses. And I'd encourage you to just breathe slow, close your eyes if it helps, and listen. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. This is the best. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and he flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. And out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered the enemies. Bolts of lightning, and he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed. The foundations of the earth were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. He reached down from on high, and he took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Oh. Is that amazing? Think of how many different beautiful pictures are presented there of lightning and clouds. You, you talk about something going on in the ocean where it says the valleys of the sea are exposed, and we know the depths of the oceans are deeper than the peaks of the highest mountains. What's God's doing through David's prayers that's moving 40 or 50,000 feet below the surface of the ocean? All of the earth is taking and paying attention to God coming to the cries of David in distress. And what's clear in David's song throughout is I had enemies who I couldn't handle. He needs a savior. He's the king of a nation. He never loses in battle. And his premise is he doesn't have a chance. Boy, his trust stayed resolute in every conflict that he needed a savior. This is the way one writer interpreting that passage puts it. David sees a God so loving that he won't tolerate David's distress. When things aren't right for David, his beloved, all creation will see his passion and urgency to meet the deeds that David has. And I want to just frame it now with 1 Chronicles 18, because this is a little overview of how David did in battle. It's kind of a summary at the close of his 
life as a king and commander. David attacked and defeated the Philistines. He captured their town of Gath and the nearby villages. David defeated the Moabites, so they had to accept him as their ruler and pay taxes. King Hadadezer was trying to gain control of the territory near the Euphrates River. David met him in battle and defeated him. David captured 1,000 chariots, 7,000 chariot drivers, and 20,000 soldiers, and he crippled all but 100 of the horses. When troops from Syria's kingdom, from Damascus, came to help, David killed 22,000 of them. Then David stationed some of his troops in Damascus, and the people there had to accept David as their ruler and pay taxes to him. And the summary, everywhere David went, the Lord helped him win battles. Jesus was to David exactly who Jesus is to you. But the question is, are you experiencing him as David did? That's a big one. That's a big one. And if all we're praying for is low gluten and parking spaces, we don't really get to experience the goodness of God in the land of the living. We have to find a way to contend for what has God's heart. Because remember, David had a heart after God, so the question is, what's God's heart? If I know what God's heart is, I can start stepping into battles where I need a savior. And in that location, in that arena, I get to have shared experience with him delivering me as David experienced God delivering him. <clears throat> really, the arenas of our lives where we most need saving are the areas where God's a specialist. Fear, anxiety, death, the future. Jesus came and in 30 or so short years addressed every one of those fears head on, took them out at the knees, rendered them completely helpless, and gave us a template that every person who chooses could call on him and know firsthand the experience of victory over fear, worry, death, shame, you name it. When we start to move into those places, we are where God calls us to be. We start to fight battles that belong to God where he will show up in our midst. Unfortunately, there's these low times as well in David's life. We're going to talk about blameless boasting, verses 21 and following. I would say that the challenge, which is common for many, is David became comfortable in his success. Things are solidly in play. The borders are secure. The neighbors are paying taxes and tributes. The army is just crack. Totally ready to go, and no one wants to go against them. At a time when battles should be taking place, David stays home. He's comfortable in his success, and like many, once he becomes comfortable, temptation and sin find their opening. I'd say probably with me you'd agree that David's lowest time we'd find in 2 Samuel 11. He's on the roof of his palace. His troops are off in battle, and he's lusting after a naked woman having a bath down below him in town. And what you have to take note of, because we read it in just a few verses, is this is a story that unfolds without him being contrite or admitting sin for months. It's deliberate, it's intentional, and he keeps pushing the wrong way. And I think often when we read things quickly especially, we don't get a sense the way SpongeBob provides it. Four days later, six months later. 
he has this woman he's lusting after brought to the palace. She has no opportunity to resist that. She's raped. Days, many days pass. She reports to him, I'm pregnant. He doesn't go, oh boy, I need to make a change. He goes, oh, I got to kill her husband. I'm skipping over some details, but that's where he gets to. His husband is so loyal and so faithful. And if you move further in David's life and read about the 30 mighty men, the men, boy, whoever you want to find who swapped stories of what they accomplished in the name of God and for his greatness, these 30 stood around David and they fought to the death for his life time and time again. And do you know that one of the men who stands out in that group of 30 is Uriah, the same man David had murdered after raping his wife? This was a loyal follower, a crack soldier, a top commander. And David strategically not only impregnated his wife, then strategically pulled back the troops so that he'd be left alone and die in battle. This isn't something that happened in 24 hours. This is months of deliberate carnal behavior, covering up and covering up. And it's not until another person, Nathan the prophet, comes to him, tells a story exposes his guilt that David's like, oh, yeah. What were you thinking, man? Oh, probably like he didn't need a savior. He lost his way. And it's not his only failing. He had plenty of others. He was human. He messed up as a dad. He messed up as a leader. In his final days, after all the victories, having never lost a battle, he tells his commander to take almost a year to go through the whole nation for one purpose. Count how many soldiers are in my army. I want to know how big my army is. And his commander says, I don't think that's a good idea. Your battles have always been won because God shows up and fights for you, not because you have the most people in the battlefield. And despite his commander's wise advice, David persists. So be clear, this guy's not perfect. In fact, he's really human like us. Sometimes he persists in sin for up to a year at a time without being guilty or showing any conviction or change. And I want you to have that as the backdrop when we read the next verses because that's why they're so profound. Second Samuel 22, 24, David sings. I have been blameless before God and have kept myself from sin. And be clear, this is his song at the end of his life. Now use that as your context, and we're going to go into these verses a little bit further. Verse 21 and following. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. So I want you to be clear. I've had all these victories. I've had all this success. I've been saved. And David's giving the reason why. And the reason he's going to keep saying, again, with that beautiful glossary of terms, is over and over expounding on how perfect he is. Okay? Take your fill. This is the gospel being sung, guys. This is the gospel being sung. I have kept the ways of the Lord. I'm not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I haven't turned away from his decrees. I've been blameless before him. I've kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. 
And then he describes God's character. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. And the question to each of us is, how can David sing verse 24? How can he say, I'm blameless, I'm clean, I'm pure, I'm righteous? How? And he says it in verse 25, it's in his sight. You're looking at me, God, and this is how you see me. Are you getting this? The gospel doesn't suggest we've never been dirty. It rejoices in knowing God has cleansed us. This is how God sees you. If you've called Jesus your savior, this is how he sees you. Weekly, I have scheduled calls with multiple individuals who I work with one-on-one. I'm thinking this morning of two specific individuals, men roughly my age, leaders, wealthy, Excellent examples in life. Really know how to love their wives. Great examples to their kids. Number one reason that we don't talk on the phone or number one reason the call gets delayed when I've dug into it with both of them. I'm too ashamed. I'm too ashamed. From a human perspective, looking at their lives, these are the people we would all, in human terms, aspire to be. They love Jesus. They love the people closest to them. They're both fantastically wealthy, and I would say their priorities are really good. But day to day, the thing that takes them out, time after time, where they don't even feel they can muster the energy to talk, is they're too ashamed. It really shows me how isolation as a tactic is so successful to remove people from a victory life. We're made for community. We need to have those calls, those conversations, those walks, those prayer times. We need to have that vulnerability where we're struggling. But if shame is the dominant narrative in our minds, I don't measure up. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. Oh, remember what I did that time? How could I possibly ever fill in the blank? Well, we are not going to enter a lot of battles at that point, are we? Because we're not good enough in our minds. Those are all lies. This, I believe, is the wonderful truth that's lived out in David's life as a warrior, as a worshiper is that he could have the most dismal failures in his life, absolutely horrid experiences and choices. But praise God, he could look back on his life and say, this, in God's sight, is how I'm seen. I'm loved. I'm blameless. I'm pure. I'm clean. In Corinthians, both first and second, we get gorgeous pictures that Paul writes for the Corinthian church. He says, we come to God in prayer with the same claim, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but what we've received in Jesus. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he has become our wisdom. He has become our righteousness. He has become our sanctification. And you might have heard this quote before in scripture. Whoever boasts, let him boast in the Lord. 
If you're going to say any good thing about anyone, make it about God. This is the one who is our strength, our salvation, our ability, our provision. You know what's really refreshing about David? He makes new mistakes. It's really the sign of a person on a growth trajectory. He makes new mistakes. We know without faith it's impossible to please God. If we're moving into new places, new experiences, trusting in God in new ways as we grow our our song thesaurus for God's goodness in our lives, these new experiences and battles and struggles will carve out new experiences, new expressions of God in our life. He's bigger than any circumstance you're facing. If you move into new battles and get new lessons, you'll have fresh faith and new ways of expressing him in your life. Let's wrap up with, with my God, I can do anything. With my God, I can do anything. I don't know if you have the conviction to say that today, but I'd welcome you to do it. With my God, I can do anything. Let's try it together. With my God, I can do anything. David was a person wrapping up his life who says in 2 Samuel, this is 22, verses 28 and following. We'll just read a few of the verses. You, Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance to get a tr- against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. Who is God beside the Lord? Who's the rock except our God? It's God who arms me with strength. He keeps my ways secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so my ankles don't give way. What a beautiful, beautiful tribute at the close of a person's life. I'll just wrap up with a thought and give it to Caleb. I was listening to a podcast interview recently with Dan Pink, the author of a book called Regrets. And he spent years studying people and regrets. And he came away with a couple great thoughts that I think fit really well with this teaching. When we're young, we do stupid things and then we say sorry. When we're old, we're afraid so we don't try stupid things anymore. So there's sins of commission. You did something that you committed, and then later on you go, ooh, i got to make that right. We get old, we get a little risk-averse, and it's all sins of omission. And how do you look back on what you never did? Because you don't know what might have been. And his conclusion in writing the book is that so many people as they age, they age out. They stop trying. They stop taking risks. And I would inject... We lose our passion for faith to trust God for new victories. And his conclusion as the author is, we need in all of our lives a bias for action. We need to be doing what God calls us to, living the way God calls us to live so that we can sing as David did. I hope you're composing your song. Amen. Thank you for listening to the LifeTree Church Sermon of the Week. At LifeTree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about LifeTree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.